Well, even though summer is still 10 days away, it certainly uh, feels like it, right? I mean, the weather's getting warmer, and uh, Top of the Park just started this past weekend. Uh, and uh, so t- today, today, what we're going to do is we're starting a new series called Ravaged by Beauty. We want to talk a little bit about uh, the theology of beauty and what it looks like to live out a spirituality of beauty. Because again, uh, we, all of us, want to be captivated by beauty, especially during the season. School is out, and some of us will be traveling. Uh, And I think just coming to this whole theme, just understanding that deeply rooted in every human heart is this unquenchable desire and longing for beauty. It is why we visit places like the Grand Canyon or the Museum of Modern Art. It is why we plant trees and flower beds. It is why we paint our walls and decorate the rooms in our home. It is why we listen to music and read novels and write poetry. It's because we want to be captivated by beauty. Beauty is why in every tribe and civilization ever known, there has always existed some form of art or craftsmanship that goes beyond just some utilitarian purpose. Because we long to be captured by beauty that is glorious, full of brilliance and splendor, that evokes a sense of wonder in us that goes beyond just words and description. Well, today, as we look at beauty, I want to propose to you that the reason why we crave such beauty is because it's actually God. Uh, He is the reason. He is the ultimate beauty, and he is the source behind all other beauties that we see. And so what would it look like this summer if we, when we realize that every sunset viewed, every meal savored, every song listened to, every home decorated, every rich moment in this life is not about itself, but ultimately it points to because it's an expression and reflection of God's beauty. Right? If we find beauty in these created things that are mere reflections, then how much more beautiful is the source itself. And yet sometimes I think it's hard for us to wrap our mind around God being beautiful. Right? I, I would even say that even the most perverted desires and, and longing for beauty, let's say illicit, illicit sexual desire, like adultery or pornography, right? they are simply a distorted remnant of a good desire that God has put within us to actually lure us back to himself. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. And so even our illicit desires are a call and a longing for God himself. Because God alone is the all-satisfying object of beauty, And it is him that your heart ultimately longs for when we crave beauty, whether you know it or not. And throughout scripture, uh, we see this command to praise the Lord and to behold his beauty. We're going to start off by looking at a passage in Psalm 27 where the writer David, and you have to understand, uh, he's not in in some monastery all by himself. He's going to say this as he is being pursued by an enemy army Uh, as he's betrayed by his very own son, and they are there to kill him. And in in the midst of that environment, he comes to this in Psalm 27, verse 4. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. Psalm 27, verse 4. 
Um, and he says this, after being surrounded by his enemies, he says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When is the last time that you have gazed upon the beauty of God? Right? Uh, Do you find in Christ, in your relationship with God, a beauty that is greater, that is more true, that is more eternal than any other beauty that ever captures your heart and your mind? And I think this is a really important question for us to consider because in our relationship with God, it's very easy to fall into what is called a transactional relationship where you go to him because you want something from him. You want your prayers answered. You want favor and blessing as you make a decision or simply because you want to go to heaven when you die. In other words, the basis of your relationship with God is primarily utilitarian. Right? You're in it for yourself. You do things like you go to church or you pray because you want to get something out of it. It's a transactional relationship. It's utilitarian. Very simply put, you, we can say that when we do that, we are using God. Right? Because you believe that if you go to him, that he will in turn give you all the things that you think will make you happy. But here's the thing. To find God useful is not the same thing as to find him beautiful. They're vastly different. To find God beautiful means that you recognize that God himself is the source of all of your happiness, regardless of whether you get what you want or not. Right? Let me give you an example. Several months ago, like some of you, I was watching Super Bowl 51, right? the most epic comeback in Super Bowl history. Well, as I was watching it, uh, I, was watch- I was watching it with Amy, and uh, during the middle of the fourth quarter, uh, d- literally in the, uh, during the replay of this catch. Do you remember that play, those of you who watched it, right? You're like, no, okay, that's okay, right? Epic play. Amy turns to me and says, Sung, it was just one of those days for her. Do you love me? (laughs) I said, well, sure, of course I do. You know I love you. And then I go back to watching the replay. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe he caught this play. And she says, well, why? (laughs) Well, I turned to her and I said, you know, Amy, okay, I I love you because... You cook for me, you do my laundry, you raise our kids, you don't ask me stupid questions in the middle of the fourth quarter during the Super Bowl, now can you pass the nachos, right? Now, she wanted me to tell you that never happened, right? She didn't ask me that in the middle of the fourth quarter, right? Make sure that you know that I would never do that. She didn't. Now, that's, very, that's a very different response then let's say if she turned to me during this replay and said, Sung, well, why do you love me? And imagine I turned off the game. 
I turned to her and I said, you know, Amy, I love you because you are absolutely beautiful. Even after 16 years of marriage, my heart still skips a beat. And whenever I see you, I mean, you just, it just, you, you just ravish my heart. Oh, my goodness. You're like my Wonder Woman, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who came up with that line? <laughs> That's the difference, right? It's like saying, I, I love you not because of what you could do for me. I love you because of who you are. To be a follower of Jesus means that you don't just find God useful. You find him beautiful. It means that God is not just a means to an end. When I was in high school, I, I took a, a music class, music appreciation class, and it was required to graduate, now, uh, I, and uh, I, I took it, and um, the teacher had us listen to various composers. Uh, Beethoven was one of them, and as part of the final exam, you had to identify who composed this piece of work. Well, I remember listening to Beethoven and at the time because I wanted to get a good grade. And I wanted to get a good grade because I wanted to maintain my GPA so that I could keep my status as an honor student. I wanted to uh, keep my status as an honor student because uh, I want to get into a good college, and I want to get into a good college because, well, I, I want to secure a good career. So you could say that I, back then I was listening to Beethoven because uh, I, 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 it was a means to something else, right? It, it was, it was a, the, the vehicle through which something else that I wanted to obtain, which was get a good job and make good money. However, today, years and years later, today, I would spend quite a bit of money to go to a symphony orchestra performance of Beethoven. Why? Am I going to get something out of it? Will it lead to some greater future prospect? No. I would spend money to go to a symphony orchestra performance of Beethoven simply because it is an end in itself. I don't listen to Beethoven now because it'll get me something. I listen to Beethoven because it is deeply satisfying and moving to me. And so here's what David is saying when he says, I gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He is saying, God is not a means to an end. He is the end. And the way you can tell whether God is a means to an end or, an end or, or, or the end itself is just to look at your prayer life. So, do you find it relatively easy to bring your laundry list of the many things you want God to do for you, but you find it really difficult to come to him to praise and worship him simply for who he is? If that's the case, you're probably using God, like I am, like I do, right? When is the last time you simply stood in awe of who God is? Where you simply basked in his presence, not coming with your own agenda. You're not coming to him for you. You're coming to him because of who he is. There's a big difference. A number of years ago, we spent uh, part of uh, my sabbatical in Europe. Uh, and we spent, uh, we literally spent thousands of dollars to fly from here over the pond to, to land in Europe. And we spent time in Italy. And then from Italy, uh, one of the countries that we spent in was Switzerland. And where, when we get, got to Switzerland, instead of going directly to our destination, we took the scenic route via the famous uh, Glacier Express, which is a train 
that cuts through the entire country of Switzerland, through the valleys and, and uh, through the mountains, uh, through the forests and hills and the rivers and the waterfalls of the countryside. Now, we could have gone directly to our destination, but instead we spent hundreds of dollars to go out of our way to take the scenic route just so we could simply sit there and gaze upon the beauty of the Swiss Alps in the countryside, right? And the question is, why did we do that? Were we going to get something out of it? Not really. We simply did it uh, because, I mean, what, what did we get out of it? We got nothing. We simply got it, right? Just, just to gaze upon its beauty, to bask in its glory, and to enjoy it was the whole point of the trip, there was nothing else, and so we found ourselves stunned and speechless at various times. Other times, we couldn't help but just express our wonder and delight as we were traveling. We would, we would go through landscapes, and we'd be like, oh my goodness, look at that, look at that, and point to each other. Wow. Which is why, actually, God commands us throughout Scripture to actually express our wonder and delight in Him. That is how we praise Him. And so in one of the Psalms, Psalm 148, which I'm going to read in its entirety, you will notice a phrase that is repeated over and over and over again. And this is just one example of many others throughout the Psalms and through Scripture. Let's uh, hear, hear the words of Psalm 48. It says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. What is the phrase that is repeated over and over again? Praise the Lord, right? Three words in English, actually one word in, in Hebrew. And that one word in Hebrew is hallelujah. One word broken into two parts. The first word, hallel, means in Hebrew to boast, to bask in the glory of something, Right? And as human beings, we have this need to attach our identity to ground our significance in something worth boasting about. And so oftentimes we chase after success and money and career because we think those things are the things that we want to boast about, hoping those things will fill the emptiness in our souls. So this is just a natural human desire to boast and bask in something halal. But the command hallelujah means, no, you don't boast in those things, you boast in Yah which is short for Yahweh, which is actually the personal name for God, right? It's kind of like, and this stands in contrast to the generic title for God that is used in scripture, which is Elohim. 
Elohim is what's used where it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim signifies strength and power and authority. And here, where it says praise the Lord, it's not the, the title for God, the generic title, it's his personal name. God actually has a name, and his name is Yahweh. And so when we say or sing hallelujah, we are basking in the presence of God in his glory when we are attaching our identity to Christ's finished work on the cross and grounding our significance in him. And so when we come to worship and praise him, it's simply to gaze upon his beauty, to bask in his glory, and to simply enjoy his presence, and that is the point of the whole thing. There's nothing else but to express our praise to him. I love this one quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their beloved, readers praising their favorite author, walker, walkers uh, praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. And he says, we delight to praise what we enjoy, and this, this is key, because praise not only expresses, but it completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And so as we're riding along the Swiss countryside, right, and here's one photo that we took, and photos cannot do justice, right, as we're riding along, we could not just sit there in silence. We simply had to express out loud words of wonder and delight. We would drive by, we, I mean, we would ride by, and we'd tap each other, look, look, look. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. And in expressing our wonder and delight in the beauty of the Swiss Alps, we brought our enjoyment to its appointed consummation. How much less would our experience would have been if we didn't express our enjoyment? Right, it's kind of like, you know, hey, I just watched Wonder Woman this weekend, right? And then there were some of you who were like, woohoo, yeah, right? You're expressing your delight or your approval of that. What happens, let's say, let's say you watch that and um, somebody says, oh, I'm thinking about going to see a movie tonight, right? It's like, and if it's a good movie, you can't help but express your delight in that. You're like, oh my goodness, it was such a good movie. You have to see it, right? Why? Because in actually expressing your delight in it, that actually consummates your enjoyment of the very thing itself, when you find somebody else has the same hobby as you do and you sit there just both gleefully and delightfully, oh my goodness, you too? You are coming to the point where you now, your enjoyment is being consummated. And so, when we gather together, we not only read scripture and pray, but we collectively sing songs of praise and worship. And in our expression of praise and worship, it, it consummates our delight and enjoyment of God himself. Now, some may say, well, how do I do that? How do I praise God when God feels so far from me right now? Right, that's a common experience, right? He seems so distant. The last thing I want to do is sing God's praises. So what do I do? Let me give you an, an example of a conversation that I often have too, too, too much, to be honest, uh, mostly with men uh, when they come and talk to me. But here's a common scenario. A, a, a husband will come to me and he'll say, you know, son, I, I don't know that I love my wife anymore. And I'll say, oh, okay. After a whole counseling session or whatever, 
uh, I'll tell usually the husband, okay, here's what you do. And he's all eager to, t- to kind of take notes and, okay, what do I do? You go to a store, buy her a dozen roses and a card. You go home and tell her that you love her. And he'll say, well, right, but I don't love her. That's why I'm here, right? I don't have the same feelings of affection for her that I used to. I'll say, well, yeah, no, no, you don't understand. Uh, That's why go buy some flowers, get a card, go home, and tell her that you love her. And again, he'll say, no, 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 son, I don't think you understand. Those feelings aren't there anymore. Those feelings are gone. The last thing I want to do is exactly what you're saying, And oftentimes I'll get to a point where I'll say, look, if you wait until those feelings surface and emerge before you do anything, you will never do anything, right? Many people assume that action follows feelings when it's actually the reverse. For example, if you waited until you felt like working out, would you ever work out? Never. But how many times have you started working out? You just simply did it, whether you felt like it or not, and in the middle of it, you're like, hey, this isn't too bad. Actually, this is really enjoyable. I don't know how many husbands come back to me and say, Song, I actually did what you said, and, you know, the first time it was a little awkward, but, yeah, you know, it it actually started to feel good. I, I think I may actually love my wife again. And so one thing I would say to those of you who feel like, you know, how do I sing praises to God when, I, when God feels so far away? Let's remember this. Feelings follow action, not the other way around. And so if you wait until you feel like God is close to you before you begin praising God, let me tell you, you will never feel like God is close to you. It just won't happen. Rather, simply begin praising him for who he is. And soon enough you'll feel like, oh, wow, God is closer than I ever thought he was. So that's how we begin to praise God. But let's also understand, that's not an adequate reason for why we praise God. Right? Praise is simply a response to the beauty of who God is. And so the reason why we worship him, really, this comes back to the astonishing news of our sin-bearing Savior, right? Here it is. We were made for beauty. We were meant for beauty, but we lost beauty. We lost paradise when we sinned. And so what Jesus does, Philippians chapter 2 says this, even though Jesus, the Son of God, was equal with God the Father, he chose to empty himself of his glory and his beauty, He came down as the suffering servant, and Isaiah 53 says this, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected, and we esteemed him not. In other words, Jesus came down, and because of our sin, he became ugly and lowly for our sake. Jesus, the Son of God, who is the most beautiful, glorious person in the world, who's the fairest among 10,000, comes and empties himself of his beauty, becomes disfigured on the cross, where he's beaten, mocked, and crucified. Why? Because he was paying the penalty for our sins. He was taking our place, bearing our punishment that we deserve. The punishment that we deserve is eternal separation from the source of all beauty, God himself. And so Jesus takes our place on the cross, He takes our ugliness, our shame, our brokenness, 
And when, he, when we place our trust and hope in him, the most amazing thing happens. We receive the gift of salvation and the beauty that belongs to Jesus, he takes it and places it upon us. He wraps us in his beauty. And so now we stand before God the Father with all of our warts and ugliness, no matter what you've done and who you are, we can stand before God the Father and God now looks at us and he declares us beautiful. And that is the beautiful good news of Jesus Christ, the astonishing news of a sin-bearing Savior. And, and here's the thing, when you and I begin to go to God, not simply as a means to an end, but as the end itself, there is absolutely nothing more life-transforming than that. Let me just leave you with this one simple statement that I think summarizes the entire message. But it's simply this. We don't go to God because he is useful. We go to God because he is beautiful. Yet, there is nothing more useful than to find God beautiful. So today, we're going to respond, and we want to find God beautiful. We want to gaze upon his beauty. Would you all stand? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to collectively sing and praise the Lord? So God, we come into your presence as little children adoring and praising our Heavenly Father. And as we run into your arms, that command, that call to praise you goes out through all creation so that the stars in the heavens and the creatures in the seas all lift their voices up to you. The rocks cry out. So God, how could we not simply just stand in awe of who you are? To lay down our requests, to lay down our problems, to lay down the all the things that are surrounding us now and to find you the most beautiful thing to gaze upon your beauty and to dwell in your house all the days of our lives. And so God, as you call forth our praise, we lift up our voices, we lift up our hands in praise and glory and honor to you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.